you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. We have before us tonight another reading from the Gospel according to John. It's a continuation of last Sunday's reading about the vine and the branches with its call to abide in Christ. The next Sunday, the seventh and final Sunday in Easter, we will again be reading from this same gospel according to John. And all three of these readings are drawn from John's treatment of what happened in the upper room before Jesus went out into the darkness of Gethsemane and was arrested. Now, one way to describe John's version of what happened in that upper room is wordy. It stretches five full chapters. Jesus' words fill about 90% of the whole. If you happen to look at one of those old red-letter editions of the Bible in which the words of Christ are printed in red, you'll see that the publisher had to use a whole lot of red ink in this five-chapter section. In fact, chapter 15, from which tonight's reading is drawn, is solidly red ink from beginning to end. So, lots of words. But another word, a a more significant word, a more powerful word for this long section is subversive. Because what you see happening is Jesus steadily subverting all expectation around the nature of his lordship and the shape of his people, his following. Now that really gets underway at the beginning of this upper room section. When in the midst of the meal, Jesus, quote, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, tied a towel around himself, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with that towel. What's interesting is that John doesn't make any mention at all about the sharing of bread and wine. Presumably because John knew that that story was so very well known. And so he wanted to focus on this act of foot washing. What's subversive is that the master is the one who does this foot washing for his students. Something that Peter actually tried to raise a bit of a protest about. No, no, Lord, not, no, never. I'll wash your feet. And Jesus, of course, won't let Peter's protest stop him. And once he's washed all of their feet, he says to them, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is going to be a movement marked by mutual servanthood, to the point where even the Lord himself is, among other things, a servant. Completely unexpected vision of things. Well, as the narrative moves forward, we we soon come to another one of those convention-subverting teachings. It's called a new commandment. It's actually arguably the only commandment issued by Jesus in this gospel according to John. 
This new commandment is that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another, which then bridges us into the reading for this evening, which comes about a chapter and a quarter further into this extended section of John. Tonight's reading begins, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Or, as Eugene Peterson renders it in his translation, the message, I've loved you the way my Father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. I like that very domestic quality of Peterson's translation choice because I think that at this moment, Jesus really is speaking to them and by extension to us about the day-to-day of the life of faith, and so make yourselves at home in God's love. Then this is followed by, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will be at home in my love, just as I am at home in the Father's love. But what exactly are Jesus' commandments? Well, again, in John, it really is to love. And so Jesus continues, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. There's a simple and and, and an almost elegant logic to that, of course, because Jesus is essentially saying, If you keep my commandment to love one another as I have loved you, then you will abide in my love. You will have made yourselves at home in my love. But I think we need to be really clear that this is by no means some posture of sentimentality. It isn't a a sort of a, a sugary, sweet emotionalism in which we all stand around holding hands and sing sticky, sweet, and pious songs as if there's never any trouble in life. It's not emotionalism, it's not sentimental, partly because Jesus says that there is a parallel here to the way he has kept his Father's commandments and so abides in his Father's love. And in loving one another, we are in fact caught up in that divine love. The divine love that is shared between Father and Son or swirls and dances in the Trinity itself. That's what it means when we love one another. We are caught up in the divine love. But it's also because of what he says next. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, that's clearly an allusion to the cross, right? To the next day when he would lay down his life for his friends. But beyond that, it's also a mandate to love in such a way that it might cost us our very lives. This isn't sentimentality. It's actually risk. And isn't it something that Jesus uses the word friends? He speaks of laying down one's life for one's friends. And then he looks at them and he says, You are my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer 
Because a servant does not know what the master is doing, I have called you friends. And so the subversion of those conventions of master-disciple, teacher and student, deepens even more. He begun this section by washing their feet and calling them into servanthood. He'd gone on to speak of them, to them of offering love just as they'd first been loved. And now he says to them, in effect, even servanthood isn't a strong enough category here. I love you in friendship. Would have been 12 years ago that I titled a sermon on this gospel text, I Have 137 Friends. Facebook friends, that is. Apparently 12 years ago, I had 137. I now have 686. And some of them I even know. Now, obviously, I don't actually have 686 actual friendships because it would be utterly impossible to sustain that many friendships. It's also a real diminishment of that word friend, one that quite utterly misses the nature of true friendship. C.S. Lewis somewhat mischievously wrote, Eros, so romantic love, Eros will have naked bodies, friendship, naked personalities. I love that. Eros will have naked bodies, friendship, naked personalities. Naked personalities by which he was pointing to the fact that true friendship calls of us a kind of honesty and vulnerability that isn't necessarily all that easy to offer, and certainly not to 686 people. In each of my friends, Lewis comments, in each of my friends there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. Now maybe that's some sorrow or struggle or wound, but maybe it's also some gift or strength or quality of character. Lewis's point is that in the context of real friendship, we are able to be most fully who we are. That the trustful security that comes with a true friendship can not only bring out the best in us, it can also create the sort of space in which hurts or fears or struggles can be voiced and voiced safely. This also speaks quite profoundly to our life of faith, to our life in God. Listen to the words of St. Gregory of Nyssa, written in the 4th century. Gregory writes, This is true perfection, not to avoid a wicked life because we fear punishment, like slaves, not to do good because we expect repayment, as if cashing in on the virtuous life by enforcing some business deal. So, pause, right? What Gregory is saying is that the life of faith is not about having to behave in order to avoid God's punishment, 
or behave in order to earn some brownie points that will get us our reward. No, that's not the life of faith. And so Gregory continues, on the contrary, disregarding all those good things which we do hope for and which God has promised us, we regard falling from God's friendship as the only thing dreadful. And we consider becoming God's friend the only thing truly worthwhile. We consider becoming God's friend the only thing truly worthwhile because it keeps forming us as the people we were intended to be. The same way that Lewis, when he talks about human friendship, says it, we bring out from each other that which otherwise would never surface, we become most fully who we are in those trustful relationships. Here Gregory is suggesting we consider becoming God's friend the only thing truly worthwhile because that keeps forming us as the people we were intended to be, people made in the very image of God. And because it is good, true, and worthwhile. God's friends. So no, I don't have 686 friends. I really don't. That number is impossibly large. But it's also pathetically small. It's pathetically small because Jesus looked at his disciples and claimed them as his friends. And in doing that, he has also offered to us friendship in Christ. And if we are befriended by Christ, made to be, as Gregory puts it, God's friends, then through him and in him we are linked to all of God's friends across the world and throughout the ages. Isn't that vastly more wondrous a thing than a whole bunch of likes on a Facebook post? Consider yourself claimed tonight and always and eternally as God's friends. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.